Mark chapter 14. We'll start with verse 43, but let's get a bit of a running start. Because last Sunday, if you recall, we left things off with a bit of a cliffhanger. There's Jesus. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane literally means Garden of the Olive Press, located on the southwestern slope of the Mount of Olives. Jesus has been spending time in prayer. His disciples have been spending time in slumber. And Jesus goes and he wakes them abruptly. And he tells them that the hour has come that the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. So rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And I, I love to try to get myself into the scene as if I'm there in the garden as these things are unfolding. Oftentimes, we become so familiar with stories that we lose the essence of how they occur, the scene as they unfold. As I see this scene playing itself out, realize that it's, it's 2 a.m. It's dark. This garden is only lit as the rays of the moon cascade their way through the cloud cover and the thick foliage of the olive grove. I can imagine that Jesus and the disciples, as he's speaking these things, they hear in the distance a commotion stirring. As this clamor grows and intensifies, the glowing amber of the torches, John tells us they had torches, becomes more able to be seen. You're not sure how many people there are, but as they get closer, as things get louder, you realize what's happening. I'm sure that the disciples are fuzzy. They just woke up abruptly, the middle of the night. They've reached their deep sleep. They're not sure what's happening. They hear the commotion. They see the torches. They know a crowd is approaching, right? But Jesus, Jesus is not caught off guard at all. Without anyone being able to see a face of this approaching mob, Jesus knows what's afoot. He knows what's happening. He tells them that his betrayer is at hand. And what does Jesus do? He goes out to meet him. If I had a betrayer, or if I were in this particular scene, my initial reaction would be to run the other way. And yet Jesus here, he goes with a determination. And we're told, verse 43, that immediately, Instantly, while Jesus was speaking, while he's telling his disciples these things, that Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. We're told that his betrayer, he had given this mob a signal, saying that whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. Now, knowing that Jesus would be leaving the Seder dinner, the upper room, and making his way to the Garden of Gethsemane to spend some time in prayer, to spend some time only with his disciples, Judas has finally been provided. He's finally been given the perfect set of conditions, the perfect opportunity to betray Jesus. In this moment, conditions are perfect. Now, in order to avoid and minimize whatever confusion might play itself out. Judas tells the mob that as we approach, I'm going to go up. 
I'm recognizable. I'm a friend. I'm one of them. They won't think anything differently. I'll go up and I'll signal who in the crowd is Jesus by kissing him. This word kiss, this unique identifier, it's not exactly what you think it is. We think of a kiss from our Western perspective as, you know, puckering up. And yet the word itself is interesting. The word kiss in the Greek is the word phileo, which is one of the three forms of the word love. It indicates that Judas came to Jesus and he greeted him. He approached him with an affectionate brotherly greeting. I'm not sure tons have changed in 2,000 years, but I am not affectionately greeting my brother by puckering up. So more than likely, this is a customary Eastern type of greeting. Judas, he also instructs them that once he identifies who Jesus is, that they're to seize him or literally arrest him and they're to lead him away safely or to handle him as to prevent escape. Now, this scene leads me with an interesting observation. So you have Judas, you have this mob. They're coming to arrest Jesus. They took Jesus very seriously. I mean, this seems kind of interesting and and kind of bizarre from my perspective. Like, what really about Jesus would lead them to such drastic measures. I mean, Jesus wasn't a revolutionary. He had never carried an arm, had never encouraged his followers to carry arms. He had never spoken words encouraging violent action. I mean, what was it in this moment that would cause the mob, Judas, the chief priests, the scribes to send such a crew? Because we can observe, right? They came in numbers. In addition to Judas and an unspecified number of scribes and priests, elders, basically the lawyers. Mark describes this mob as being a great multitude. This phrase, great multitude, in the Greek, it indicates a troop of people gathered without number. John 18 provides a little more information. He tells us that Judas, before he had come, he secured a detachment of troops and officers to come arrest Jesus. In addition to the temple police, which were Levites, the Sanhedrin had at its disposal auxiliary police, servants of the court who were assigned with the task of maintaining public order, not just in the temple, but around the temple. So Judas secures the temple guard, but more than likely also secures other officers. There's a crowd. They came in numbers. People who were equipped to arrest, to keep the peace, to hold down a mob. So they came in numbers, which seems silly, I think. It's just one guy you're going to arrest. Not only that, they, they came very equipped. They came armed. Mark tells us that they came with swords and clubs. Now, the word club, it doesn't indicate like Fred Flintstone style clubs, that this is, you know, like very elementary type of weapons of warfare. The the word club actually indicates that it's a a wooden piece, a solid piece of wood that was used to secure a prisoner. 
It had holes in which the arms would go through and which it would latch down to the ankles of which the, the neck would be placed. It, it was their way of detaining Jesus. So they come with swords, but they also cl- come with, uh, with this, this sort of mechanism to keep Jesus from running away. John tells us that their weapons, that in addition to swords, that what they had, they were the kind of instrumentation that you would find used with a group of people going into battle or literally warfare. Now, once again, to me, on the surface, as you observe this scene, it seems overkill. It's just Jesus. And even if you thought that the other 11 disciples might cause a stir, and let's be honest, they were a bit of a wild card. None of them have training with maybe the exception of Simon the Zealot. None of them are equipped. None of them carry weapons. I mean, we see in in the scene that even if you were bringing a group to deal with the disciples, were they really that much of a threat? Like to me, I look at the scene and they come with great numbers. They come armed to arrest Jesus. So what was it about Jesus that had them so overly prepared. I mean, what was it about Jesus that necessitated the need for such dramatic measures? Though Jesus was obviously known by his love for people, that Jesus was known by his compassion for the hurting, his tenderness towards the downtrodden, his empathy for the lost of Israel, even the Gentiles, it appears from this scene, that though Jesus was known for his love, his enemies feared him. That there was something about Jesus that caused fear and trepidation. And that's interesting to me because we don't think of Jesus in that sense. Like we don't consider Jesus as being someone you didn't trifle with that if his enemies were gonna come arrest him, that they bring a mob that's armed to the teeth, right? I mean, Jesus, from all points and purposes, we don't see as being that dangerous. So what was it? Because we see fear. I think there are two reasons. First, Jesus, Jesus was a tough dude. And he was known to demonstrate a fiery disposition and a righteous anger towards whom? the very people that were going to arrest him, the religious establishment. On two instances, Jesus had done what? Already previously, he had gone into the temple with a weapon and had driven them out, physically resorted to violence. John chapter two, verse 15 tells us that early in his ministry, Jesus is sitting there watching what's happening. And we're told that he made a whip of cords that Jesus is getting materials, he's sitting there, he's stewing, and he's weaving together a weapon by which he's gonna use to drive them out. Mark 11 tells us that just a few days before this, on Sunday, after the triumphal entry, when Jesus makes it to the temple, he doesn't have a weapon, he doesn't even have time to weave a cord of whip. What does he do? He rolls up his shirt sleeves and he goes bare knuckles on everyone. And he's physically driving everyone out. He uses his bare hands to overturn the tables. He shuts down temple commerce. Jesus was a tough guy. We think of Jesus in our mental picture of being kind of 
a wimpy dude. Don't forget his occupation before his earthly ministry had been, he was a carpenter, which means that he worked with his hands. More than likely also was a mason in the sense that he crafted stones that Jesus for 30 years had worked hard, was blue collar. No doubt Jesus' forearms were massive. That when Jesus gripped your hand, that you felt it. There was a guy, uh, every year we would go on these men's retreats, and they would do, for a few years, arm wrestling competitions. And you had the young bucks, you know, kind of like myself, ripped, cut, chiseled, who are, you know, full of pride and ego, thinking, we'll take them. But always, there was this older gentleman in our church There was nothing about him on the surface that caused any attention. You wouldn't have have exactly said that this gentleman was the most ripped guy in the church. But inevitably, he destroyed everyone at arm wrestling competition. And the reason being is that for a living, he was a sheetrock guy. So he was used to carrying around these huge buckets of, of mud and plaster. And he was used to, to holding things up on the roof. Like his forearms were just, were cut. Very nondescript looking dude, but you didn't mess with him. Jesus, there was nothing about him that would have caused this particular attention. But when he wanted to, he lashed out. Not only did he kick everyone out of the temple on two occasions, but over and over and over again. Jesus didn't back away from verbally going to town on the religious establishment. He confronted them over and over and over again, calling them hypocrites. No doubt, by their experiences at this juncture with Jesus, they had room to be concerned, thinking we don't know what he could do. We know he's strong, he's crafty, he made a whip. So we're gonna bring numbers that are armed. But I also think there's another reason that they feared Jesus. All of these men, Judas included, they had seen Jesus demonstrate a supernatural power that was otherworldly. I mean, Jesus was not your normal guy. And they knew it. By just speaking the words... He was able to cause a raging storm to cease. There were demoniacs that no one could subdue, that no one could place into chains, madmen that with just words, Jesus could free and liberate. No doubt from their experiences, they saw that there was an obvious and undeniable power that existed within Jesus. And it would appear that their concern over Jesus's power was justified. Verse 45, we read that as soon as Judas had come, immediately he went up to Jesus. He said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, he kissed him, he greeted him. So they laid their hands on him and they took him. Now, between verses 45 and 46, between Judas's kiss of betrayal and the mob rushing in and arresting Jesus, John, 
he provides an interesting, a fascinating detail not mentioned here. Something happens between the embrace of Judas and their actual arresting of Jesus. Verse eight, uh, chapter 18, verses four through six, John tells us this. He says, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, he went forward and he said to them, whom are you seeking? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who had betrayed him, past tense, meaning that the act had already taken place before Jesus says what he says, he stood with the mob. And when he said to them, I am he, answering their question, we're told that they drew back, this mob of armed soldiers drew back and boom, immediately fell to the ground here in the garden. Look at what Jesus said. He said, I am he. Sadly, the, the word he that's italicized, and you'll see it in your translation that it's italicized. That, that means that it was added by the translators. It was never in the text that we don't have original documentation or early man, manuscripts that include this word he, but that they added it in after the fact, just for context, for ease of reading. Tragic mistake, because they missed the whole point. They missed the essence of what Jesus says. Hey, who are you seeking? We're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. I am. Now, if you're a student of scripture, you know that Jesus is using here this Greek phrase, emi ego, which was the holy name of God. It was the name that God gave Moses there at the burning bush. Well, when I go to the, the people of Israel, who do I tell them sent me? And God said, Say this, I am that I am. Jesus in this moment. Oh, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth? I am. And in this moment, what resulted? His words exploded from his mouth, knocking everyone to the ground. Boom, like this ripple effect. And I can see it. I am. Boom. And you see it working its way as they're falling to the ground. David Guzik, he makes an interesting observation. He says that while this demonstration of power is impressive, I think that's probably understating it, he says that it is still a pretty humble display of Jesus' power. And why is this? After all, he could have destroyed them all with fire from heaven. Jesus indicating who he is. Now, before we continue, I want to make another observation. The scene is evidence that Jesus' physical appearance was nondescript, that Jesus was a normal guy, and that his appearance was contrary to popular portrayals and folklore. I mean, nothing about Jesus indicated that he was who he was. I mean, he had nothing about his physical appearance that was like this surefire indicator that he was Jesus, that like kind of set him apart, made him different. Jesus was probably 5'4", the common height of a first century Jewish male. To the point, Judas has to tell the crowd, 
I'll pick him out for you. Like you had a lineup of Jesus with the disciples and you wouldn't have known, which is interesting to me because this seems to like contradict, it seems to run against the tide of our popular opinions and portrayals of Jesus. I mean, consider, Jesus would have been, for the most part, very identifiable if, as we see, he had a neon glowing halo that resided a few inches above his head. I mean, Judas wouldn't have had to say, I'll go kiss Jesus to indicate who he is. They would arrive and Judas would just be like, go get the guy that's glowing in the dark. That's Jesus. He's a little different. I mean, it's not as though Jesus was, as some people have speculated, like two feet taller than everyone else. I mean, once again, Judas would be like, go get the tall one. That's Jesus. It's not as though that as people speculate and consider that when Jesus talked, that there were like orchestras of angels playing behind every word that came out of Jesus's mouth. If that was the case, Judas would have been like, I don't need to kiss him. That's a little awkward. Just wait for him to talk and then you'll hear the orchestra break into song. That's your man. I mean, it's not as though that Jesus was a light-skinned Swedish man living in a first century culture of dark-skinned Jews. I mean, it's not as though that Jesus had perfectly blow-drawn hair. Once again, Judas would be like, go get the white dude that looks like Fabio. Like it would be very easy for them to have identified Jesus and yet there is no way they have to point out. Judas has to identify him so that they can arrest him, which is interesting to me. Well, verse 47, and one of those who stood by, we're told that he drew his sword and he struck the servant of the high priest and he cut off his ear. Now Mark leaves this man nameless. But John, well, John's quick to make sure we know his identity. It's Peter, which makes it interesting why Mark would leave out this detail because he's getting his narrative from whom? Peter. And John writing much later is like, I'm not letting that guy get away with it. And so he makes sure you know who the idiot is with a sword. It's Peter. We're told that as the soldiers are getting up from the ground. Because there's always kind of this question, where did Peter get the sword? Once again, they've all been knocked over. I think Peter sees an opportunity. He grabs a sword. And what does he do? He's determined to make good on his promise to defend Jesus no matter what the cost. As the soldiers get up and make their way, they rush towards Jesus. They begin to cuff him. Peter springs into action, grabs a sword, we're told that he struck the servant of the high priest, a man that John tells us was Malchus. And the result of Peter's heroics, Malchus loses an ear. <laughs> I want to make two quick observations about Peter's heroics here. Instead of going, and this kind of tells you how brave a man Peter was. Instead of going mano y mano, with an armed temple guard. He grabs a sword and he looks for an opportunity to defend Jesus. And who does he choose? He chooses an unarmed servant boy. A servant boy. 
Peter, valiant, grabbing a sword. I'm going to go after someone. I'm not going to go after the guys who can fight back. I'm not going to go after the guys actually arresting Jesus. I'm going to go after that kid. That seems about where I'm at with things. So Peter, he's valiant. He grabs his sword and he goes after a teenage kid. And what else does he do? He demonstrates incredible fencing skills. There's no doubt in my mind. I mean, losing an ear, that that doesn't, like that can't be his target. That can't be what he was planning for. No doubt he's going for a kill shot, right? So Peter grabs his sword. All right, that kid, I'm going after him. And he rears back and he swings with all of his might. Peter's so good at fencing, he can't hit someone in the head. He misses. How do you miss someone's head? And instead, he just clips an ear. Now, to make matters even worse, John, he gives us a weird detail. It's bizarre. John tells us that Peter not only clipped an ear, but he clipped Malchus's right ear. Very specific. Which is interesting, because what is John making sure we can put together? Not only does Peter attack an unarmed boy named Malchus, not only does he miss the kid catching an ear, but because it's the right ear, and most in this time period were right-handed, it means in order to miss someone's head and to cut off the right ear, he's not standing toe-to-toe. As a matter of fact, he's going after Malchus as the kid's running away. He attacks an unarmed boy who's trying to escape, missing him completely and cutting off his ear. Peter. (laughs) Peter. And if it couldn't get worse for the poor boy, Luke tells us that as they're placing Jesus in shackles, he turns to his captors as this is unfolding. He says, permit even this, or literally, restrain me. Don't restrain me for a moment. Restrain me not. The guards allowed him, and we're told that he reaches down, picks up the ear, and reattaches it to Malchus's head. I mean, if you're Peter, I mean, you feel about this tall. You have totally blown it. You've acted like an idiot, which tells me something. A little observation. Do you know that Jesus does not need our defense Like, Jesus doesn't need you to defend him. In his attempt to defend Jesus, Peter was acting, what? He was acting contrary to the will of Jesus. Like, for Peter, yes, he was noble, I guess. He was sincere, sure. But there was no concern for what Jesus wanted. Peter felt it was his responsibility to defend Christ. And though Jesus had addressed this topic of his coming arrest with Peter over and over and over again, the Pontus one still didn't realize or he refused to accept that the events of this evening were happening exactly as Jesus wanted them to. Please understand that as an ambassador of Christ, your job is very, very simple. You've been called to align yourself to his will, not determine what his will should be. As with Peter, when we lose sight of this reality, even with the best of intentions, what happens? We end up acting like a fool. 
and what people get hurt in the process. It's interesting to me that Jesus, as he's in the process of redeeming humanity from the clutches of sin and death, he has to stop. He has to pause and do what? Clean up a mess made by who? By one of his followers. Sad to say, I think Jesus spends a lot of time today cleaning up the messes made by you and I. Then Jesus, he answered, he said to them, have you come out as against a robber? Swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Though Jesus will provide, as we'll see, no defense for himself during the illegal trials that will follow later this evening. As they're placing him in shackles, Jesus makes sure to go on the record. He addresses this group with a very stern rebuke. I was with you daily in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me then. What's Jesus saying here? He's basically telling them, you guys had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to arrest me. If you're going to reject me and try me and crucify, you had time. It's not like I've been running from you. I've been in the open, but rather you choose the middle of the night during Passover because you're cowards. Jesus, he has no respect for the ambivalent. And once again, we can observe here that Jesus is in total, complete control. Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? Now, some view this statement as having kind of a hint of sorrow, like Jesus' disbelief that they would treat him as if he were a common criminal. Some have read this like, what did I do to treat me like this? You could have arrested me in other ways. Where's the respect? You're, you're, you're arresting me like you would a criminal, but I'm not guilty of a crime, and you know it. Some see this as being, you know, Jesus is sorrow, disbelief. But, you know, I believe that Jesus is doing something else here. That Jesus is pointing out the silliness of this scene. I see Jesus saying to them, do you really, <laughs> you really think that you could arrest me, that you could come out, with swords and clubs to arrest me like you would a criminal? Like really, you think that this, that you're like your mini army, your weapons, your shackles, that these things could subdue me? I'm the son of God with just a word, with two words. I just knocked you all on your tushes. You really think that you could arrest me like you would a normal criminal? That's silly. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is making it clear that they aren't arresting him, but that he's willingly surrendering himself to this fate. And why? Well, he tells us, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So verse 50 then they all forsook him and fled. Jesus knew this was coming. Jesus had predicted it. It was inevitable. He knew the, the 11 would run. 
He knew Judas would betray. Nothing's happening that would shock him. But you know, those words, then they all forsook him and fled. Jesus knows it's coming, but I'm sure he wasn't prepared for the sting. Because I don't think there's anything that could prepare you. Not only had he been publicly betrayed by Judas with a kiss, pouring salt into a wound. In this moment, once again, you've got to familiarize yourself with what's common. Every one of Jesus' closest friends, his best friends, his comrades, the rest of the guys in the fantasy football league, they all do what? They turn and they run and they leave him in his greatest hour of need. This word forsook, it not only describes what the disciples did, that they forsook Jesus, but it actually, the word itself describes how Jesus felt. The word literally means the divorcing of a wife by her husband. Not only had Jesus been left in the moment to fend for himself, but he had been left abandoned in a state of vulnerability. He had been let down when he needed someone the most. C.S. Lewis wrote that friendship is unnecessary, like philosophy, like art. It is no survival value. Rather, it is important because it gives value to survival. Lewis is saying here that though friendships aren't initially essential for a person's survival, that once they've been afforded value by the individual, the removal of a friend or that relationship can have a devastating impact on a person's ability to survive. Not only would Jesus face what he would face, but the abandonment of his friends would have a deep impact and far-reaching consequences. You know, last week, we addressed the psychological, emotional, even physical benefits of having social connections, especially when we're in like that dark place. But do you realize that the reverse is true of abandonment? There was a brain imaging study led by Ethan Cross at the University of Michigan. And it suggested, it's a fascinating study, but it suggests, it shows, it demonstrates, that the same part of the brain that is activated when a person endures physical pain also lights up the same region, the same way when a person experiences social rejection. This means that the old saying, sticks and stone may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is not only moronic, but tragically unscientific. Because words, the pain caused by sticks and stones is chemically identi identical to the pain that's inflicted when we're rejected by a friend. It hurts in a deep, deep way. You ever been abandoned? You ever been rejected? You know what I'm talking about. You experience it. Jesus is enduring this in this moment. But something else I think is happening here that we don't often talk about. Shelley Taylor, in a study at the University of California, 
and this whole deal about the effects of social rejection and the pain that it caused, the physical aspects of what social rejection produced, she says something interesting. She was able to demonstrate that psychological stress that's produced by relational conflicts, it actually produced, it yields an increase in inflammation levels in the body. Not only in your brain does it, does it activate the same portion of your brain that physical pain does, that it really hurts, but not only that, after this chemical process takes place, the body goes on notice. It inflames, which means that the pain of being rejected by his friends actually induced increased inflammation levels in Jesus's body making the physical torment that he would experience later in the night all the more brutal and painful. Being rejected would have incredible impacts. And this evening, if only they had stood up, it might have lightened the load, but they didn't. Now, a certain young man, he followed Jesus, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young man, they laid hold of him. And so he left the linen cloth, and he runs through the Garden of Gethsemane, naked. Admittedly, this is the most bizarre verse in the entire Gospel of Mark. This verse is not included in any other Gospel narrative. Matthew, Luke, John, nobody else includes this little tidbit of information that once again, as you're getting the scene, they're arresting Jesus. There's this rush, this commotion lit by the moon and the torches that as the disciples are running, as they're trying to be arrested, that in the middle of this scene, there is a naked jaybird running right through the garden. So why in the world do we know this? Like, why is this included? Well, most scholars actually see this as an autobiographical detail that the young man running butt naked through the garden is actually Mark. That this is Mark. Like, I got to get into the story somehow. I can see that as he's talking with Peter about the evening, as he's writing down Peter, recounting the experiences, as they're chit-chatting about it, that Peter's being honest. I did something so stupid. I grabbed a sword. In that moment, I went after Malchus, who probably became a believer. He was running. I cut off his ear. Yeah, Mr. Like, please don't. You can include the story. Just don't include my name. And Mark's kind of in this moment, he's feeling like, okay, Peter's being real raw here. He's being real honest that maybe I got I to gotta throw something back at him. And like, well, you think that's bad, Peter. You know, I was there and they tried to grab hold of me. And yeah, I ran stark naked through the Garden of Gethsemane on my way home. It was so embarrassing. I love it. The rawness, the reality of Scripture. And so they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all of the chief priests, the elders, the scribes. Peter, Mark tells us, followed Jesus at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants, and he warmed himself at the fire. Jesus is arrested in the garden approximately 2 a.m. For the next six and a half hours, concluding around 8.30, 
that morning, Jesus will be transported all over Jerusalem. He'll endure six different trials before Pilate ultimately sentences him, scourges him, crucifies him, and allows him to be buried. Now Mark, he's transitioning the narrative. But he's letting us know that while all the other disciples end up being MIA, that Peter, he's alone, but he's following Jesus, verse 54. But then Mark does something interesting. Instead of providing for us a chronological outline of these six trials that take place all over Jerusalem, Mark proceeds to summarize the Jewish portion of the trials. Verses 55 through 65 is Mark's summary. Though it might read as though it's one trial, it's probably three to four different trials that Mark is just summarizing. Before, what does he do? He gets back to Peter. So he introduces Peter's following at a distance. Now, let me tell you, let me summarize these trials. Now, because our author summarizes them, doesn't place them in chronology, I thought it would be helpful to at least establish a timeline for the events of this evening following his arrest. Jesus, he's brought from the Mount of Olives back across the Kidron to the southern part of Jerusalem, more than likely very near the upper room. But he comes to the house of the high priest, Annas. He's interrogated and he's beaten. Peter is in the courtyard and he denies Jesus for the first time. Now, around 3 a.m., Annas sends Jesus a few doors down to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, if you're sitting there thinking that, thought there was only one high priest. You're correct. Ananias was the high priest for years and years and years. He controlled Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. And yet, according to Josephus, he got into some trouble, some complicated nature with the Romans. And as a result, he decided he would step away from the position and he would promote Caiaphas, who was his son-in-law. So Caiaphas is the high priest, but in reality, everyone knows that Caiaphas is nothing more than just a puppet head, that he's not really the high priest, that Ananias is still the high priest. And so that's why we have two high priests taking place, kind of like the godfather and then the guy that's running the show taking place. So first, Jesus goes to Ananias' house. Peter denies Jesus. He's beaten. He doesn't utter a word. He sent a few doors down to Caiaphas. 3 a.m., he meets with Caiaphas and a small group of the Sanhedrin, which were a 70-member ruling body there in Israel. They're doing a preliminary trial. Peter denies Jesus for a second time. At sunrise, around 5.15, Jesus is sent from Caiaphas' home to the temple to appear now before the full Sanhedrin. That is the official trial. At this point, Jesus testifies that he is indeed the Son of God, and they declare that he's guilty of blasphemy. Some point between the second trial at Caiaphas' home and the official trial that takes place with the Sanhedrin at the temple, Peter will deny Jesus for a third and final time, the rooster crows. 6 a.m., Jesus is brought 
to the north part of the temple, which was the fortress of Antonio, to appear before Pontius Pilate. During his questioning, Pilate will learn that Jesus is from Galilee, which means that it's not exactly his jurisdiction. So he sends Jesus across town to the western side to meet with Herod, Herod Antipas. 645, Jesus appears before Herod, but we're told utters not a word, says nothing. Frustrated, Herod will send him back to Pilate. Somewhere between 7.30 and 8 a.m., as this process is taking place, Pilate continues the dialogue with Jesus, does everything he can to try to find a way to release Jesus. He doesn't want to sentence him, but will ultimately succumb to the pressure, sentence Jesus to be crucified, and he's taken to be scourged. Verse 55, now the chief priests, all of the council, they sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies, they didn't agree. And so some rose up, they bore false witness against Jesus, saying, we heard him say that I will destroy this temple made with hands. And within three days, I will build up another made without hands. And obviously Jesus actually didn't say that, but not even when they said this, would their testimonies agree or align? Mark tells us that the whole purpose of the pre-trials, the trials that happened at Annas' house and Caiaphas' house, they were designed to build a case to develop a formal testimony against Jesus before it goes to the Sanhedrin so that they could end up putting him to death. But... As Mark's describing the proceedings, it's easy for us to conclude there's a lack of justice by what's happening, and it's fraught with corruption right from the beginning. You see, the judge, the jury, and the prosecutors are already in cahoots. Not only had they already agreed on the desired sentence, death, but they had done so without actually having a case to establish guilt. I would never want to go before a judge under those conditions. Not to mention the case, developing consistent testimony was becoming very difficult to manufacture. The law required a minimum of two witnesses collaborate to establish guilt. But it's problematic when many bore false witness against Jesus and their testimonies would not agree. This is and was an illegal trial. It's happening on the Passover. These men are breaking the law by having the proceeding at all. We also know it's unjust. They had determined Jesus' guilt before they ever tried him. And in the end, Jesus would be proven to be innocent. Not one credible person had anything damning to present, but they would crucify him anyway. And so the high priest stood up in the midst and he asked Jesus saying, do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. He didn't say a word. And the high priest asked again, saying, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? The whole trial's rigged, <laughs> but the defense will not tango. Jesus won't play along with the charade. They continue to provide false witness after false witness to the stand, and he refuses to cross-examine. Why? <laughs> First, he didn't want to dignify it with a response. Secondly, he didn't need to. Their testimonies obviously didn't align and frustrated with the whole situation. The high priest stands up and he gets to the core issue, doesn't he? 
He says, are you the Christ? The Christos, the anointed, and the Hebrew, the Messiah, the son of the blessed. And he phrases this, the son of the blessed, because they wouldn't utter the name of God. So he's asking, are you the son of God? Not being able to, to utter the name. And whereas none of the other questions that they presented were worthy of a response, carried any weight, when they asked him this question, are you, are you the son of God? That was finally a question worth responding to. And he says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power, coming with the clouds. Understand, once again, the phrase, I am. This is more than just Jesus' way of affirming or answering their question. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? I am is not just saying yes, but is once again invoking what? The powerful and holy name of God. And then he says, I love it, that you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. <laughs> it's as though Jesus is saying, I am not only who you say I am, but I am more than what you conclude. And there's going to come a day, friends, that the tables will be reversed that I won't be standing here taking your questions, but there will come a day that you will see me sitting at the right hand of power, your judgment day. <laughs> it's kind of as though Jesus looks at him and he's saying, you and I, pal, we're going to meet again. So the high priest tore his clothes. He said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? So they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And they began to spit on him, to blindfold him, to beat him telling him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. In conclusion here, as the spiritual leaders of Israel, it was completely within their right to disagree with Jesus. As Jews, if they so desired, it was also okay if they rejected his Messiahship. Though wrong, as free moral creatures, it was within their right to reject him. And yet we're told that they made a determination to condemn him to be deserving of death. But what happens next is indefensible. Though they could reject him, though they could deny him, I guess as the legal authority, they could sentence him to death if they so choose. What they did next cannot be defended for they blindfold Jesus and begin to beat him. And in doing so, they were stripping him of the natural ability to absorb the blows of their fists. They couldn't see it coming. And then they mock him saying, prophesy, as they beat down on him. And in not knowing where the next punch would come from, the beating was intensified. This means, this tells us that the beating itself was not justified. It wasn't a justifiable punishment for the crime that they considered him guilty of committing. The beating, it was not to enact punishment. The beating was purely to be cruel. There was no justice involved in their attack. And sadly, there would be no justice that would come next. And so, Father, we leave it there. 